you. My name is Marshall. I am one of the pastors here at the church. Hello to all the yous online, all, all the yous online. I'm, I'm better educated than that. Anyway, uh, glad to see you. Glad to see all of you who are here. Hope you have a great Thanksgiving week. Uh, if you are a follower of Jesus, Grace Presbyterian is a church where we hope you can come and continue to grow in your relationship with Jesus and with one another in a vibrant, joyful community. Uh, if you're someone who's here this morning or watching online and you are investigating Christianity, uh, we hope Grace Presbyterian is a church, a church where you can bring your doubts, where you can bring your questions, where you can try things on, try them off, and have the space uh, to fully engage uh, even if you don't yet believe. But also this church seeks to be a church for those who have been burned, burned by Christians, burned by the church. Uh, maybe you still believe, but it's really hard. And it's, it, take, it was an act of courage for you to be here this morning or even to be watching online. This church exists for those folks as well, for you as well. Um, we want this to be a place where if you need to come late and slip out early, that is okay. If you need to sit in the back row, that is okay. Uh, if you need to sit in the front row, that's okay too. Um, take your time. Uh, this is a community that gives you the space to do that because this is a community where we really do want to take seriously everyone's background and belief and to make space for that as we consider what we believe, which is Jesus, the crucified and resurrected Son of God, the crucified and resurrected Son of God. He's revealed himself primarily through his word, the Bible, so we teach through that every week. And let me pray before we give our attention to the passage that Molly has just read. Father, we come to a text that uh, in many ways is hard at first glance to read and confusing. And maybe it scares us a little bit. Maybe it makes us feel guilty or ashamed. Maybe it makes us feel angry. But wherever we are as we approach this text, God, I pray that you would meet us. You have revealed yourself to us. You have shown us yourself and especially in this text we look, help us to see that you are the God of love and you have revealed yourself to us because you love us. We pray that the meditations of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts would be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. For Christ's sake we pray, amen. I remember the first time I had the following conversation. It's a conversation I have since had with others and frankly, it is a conversation that I have had with myself. I was talking to an old friend. This was 20-plus years ago. We were at the time in our 20s. I had left a very short career in the financial industry and was now in vocational ministry. He had just graduated from a very prestigious law school and was starting his first hedge fund. Turned out to be his first of a couple of hedge funds. Been very successful. And he told me, as we sat there, he said, I want to make and have bug-off money. Bug-off money. I want to tell you that's not exactly what he said, um, but you get the picture. And I asked him, what do you mean by bug off money? And this is what he said, I want enough money that I never have to be dependent on other people. And then when anyone asks me to do something, I don't have to say yes, I can say bug off. Now, if you've been with us, we've been studying the gospel of Matthew, seeing Jesus, meeting Jesus in Matthew. This is actually the last sermon in the fall series. Uh, we will turn back to the parables of Jesus in Matthew 13 during Advent and look at what Jesus says about the nature of his kingdom, primarily the stories he tells, what we call parables. But today we look at what is at first glance a difficult teaching, especially as we are sitting right now, you are sitting right now, if you're watching online, we are where we are is one of the wealthiest zip codes in the entire world, in America, and likely the wealthiest zip code and neighborhood in uh, the Midwest. 
And this is a story, this is a sermon about the dangers of pursuing and having bug off money. But I want us to see that it is a difficult passage, but it is also a very tender and loving passage. This story is told in all three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And it's Mark that tells us this. Mark adds this editorial insight. He says that right before Jesus says to the man, go and sell everything you possess and give to the poor and follow me. Before he says that, it says Jesus looked at him and loved him. Looked at him and loved him, and then he delivered this news. And even without that editorial comment here in Matthew's edition, we can see Jesus loving, pursuing, moving towards this rich young man. Because Jesus wanted what is best for this man. He loved him. And that's what, the main thing about this story, friends, the main thing about this story is not generosity or giving. The main thing about this story is dependence on the living God, and seeing him as greater, more beautiful, more just than anything else in the world. This is to say, this is a sermon, this is a story about faith, about seeing the good in God. But I want to see three things about that faith. First, there's a call to faith, then there's a danger to faith, and then third, there is the hope of faith. But first, the call to faith. Now, a little bit of context here. This is a person, this story is about a guy that we can relate to, okay? You know this person. You may be this person. I may be this person, okay? Verse 22 says he had great possessions, which is to say he was wealthy. Luke tells us in his recounting of this story that this person was a ruler. He was a leader among other people. Verse 20 tells us that this person was young. We get a sense in reading the story that this person is respectful. Verse 17, he's very respectful in the way that he deals with Jesus. And here's the other thing. He's also a good man. He is moral. In verse 16, he asks this important question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's an important, it's an earnest question. And after verse 18 and 19, where Jesus lifts off half of the Ten Commandments, this is what the guy says about himself. After half the Ten Commandments, he says, all these I have kept. <laughs> Man, I wish I could say that. All these I have kept. This young man is wealthy, he is powerful, he is earnest, and he is good. Which is to say, this guy would fit in on the North Shore. He would fit in at Grace Presbyterian Church. There's something else interesting, though, about this episode. If you look at the whole of the Gospel of Matthew, if you look at the whole of the Gospel of Matthew, we have said week in, week out, that the Gospel of Matthew is primarily about discipleship. What does it look like to follow Jesus? And many times in this gospel, Jesus says, follow me. He says it indirectly a bunch of times, but then directly, at least on five occasions, he says to a person or to a group of people, he says, he looks him in the eye and he says, follow me, follow me. It happens in chapter 4, chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 16. And in each of those instances, when Jesus says, follow me to somebody, we learn more about what it looks like to follow Jesus, what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus. But here it happens again. Verse 21, if you would be perfect, go sell your possessed, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. And significantly, this is the last time that phrase occurs in the Gospel of Matthew. Last time. This is the climactic call, the climactic call to follow, because there's something about this text, there's something about this story that encompasses and encapsulates what it means to follow, to be a disciple of Jesus. So let's get to the story. Again, verse 16. Behold, a man came to Jesus and said, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Now, this is an important question. It's a good question. 
But right off the bat, right off the bat, this man has missed something about Jesus. He calls him and sees Jesus as a teacher. That's the role he wants for Jesus, for Jesus to be his teacher. And Jesus is a teacher. It appears this man has some sort of existential crisis. He lacks assurance of salvation. He needs to know what does it mean. He's unsure of eternal life. But he doesn't go to Jesus as his Lord and as his God. He goes to him as a teacher. He wants advice from Jesus. He wants some help. He wants some help. And I got to say, this is a struggle for most of us. We want Jesus to help us navigate life. We want Jesus to help us feel better about life. We want Jesus to help us feel fulfilled in that deep aching deep in our souls. We want Jesus in many ways, I think, to be like a good therapist who hears us out and always takes our side. I've said before, I think I'm quoting Christian Smith when I say this, that the reigning religion in America, the reigning religion in America is therapeutic moral deism or moral therapeutic deism, moral therapeutic deism, moral, generally good, but not really holy according to God's standards, moral, therapeutic, helping me to feel better and even to be a better person, therapeutic, and then deism, God is a thing, he's out there, he's real in some form or fashion, but he's not personal and he's certainly not in control, moral, therapeutic, deism. And friends, I need you to let you know that we can actually believe in moral therapeutic deism and put Jesus' face on it. And look at Jesus as a teacher who's going to help us live a fulfilled life or feel better about ourselves. Treat Jesus as a teacher but not as a Lord. Treat Jesus as our buddy and not as God. Some sort of cosmic Santa Claus who never tells us no or sell everything you possess and give to the poor. But Jesus, being both that God, the great counselor and the sovereign Lord, I love what he does. He draws near to this man. He doesn't just kind of dismiss him out of hand. What an idiot. He doesn't. He turns to the man. He draws near to him. Verse 17 says, if you want eternal life, Jesus says, then keep the commandments. Now this guy, either to prove himself or because he really wants to know, and let's give him the benefit of the doubt. I actually think he really wants to know. He says, which commandments? Which commandments? To which in verses 18 and 19, Jesus quotes half of the Ten Commandments. Commandments 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9. He quotes half the Ten Commandments, right? Jesus is taking the law quite seriously. He knows the law is not a passport to eternal life, but the law is certainly a pointer to eternal life. Very important. So the young man responds, though, verse 20, All these have I kept. What do I still still lack? And Jesus says to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now, before we dive real deep in this, let me just show you something. Jesus is actually using the same tool, the law, that he used in verse 18. He's using the same tool, because functionally what he is saying is you have broken, man, you don't know this, you have broken the 10th commandment, which Jesus didn't quote. You have broken the 10th commandment, which is you shall not covet. Because of this man's great possessions, he was greedy and he did not want to give. But more important than that, Jesus is saying, you have broken the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Because when this young man says he went away sorrowful, or when Jesus says, or Matthew says about him, he went away sorrowful because he had great possessions, What we see is this man's problem is not generosity. It is not giving money. This man's problem is who he trusts, what he trusts, what he loves. His problem is which 
God he worships. And he loves, trusts, and worships his possession. As Chris Reed said a few weeks ago, talking about this passage in reference to another, this young man has been given a personal invitation, a personal invitation to walk with the living Lord, to walk with Jesus, and he turns Jesus down because he does not want to give up his treasure. His functional trust is his money. His treasure is his God. What about you? What about me? What is keeping you from total devotion to following Jesus? What is the one thing? Because I don't think it's the same thing for all of us, and it's not necessarily money. But what is the one thing that if Jesus asked you for it, you would not be willing to give it? Which is to say, what is your precious? What is the thing that is most precious to you? I'm using the Lord of the Rings. Remember, Gollum is precious, is precious. What is most precious to you? Because here's the deal. Because Jesus loves us, because he wants us to have the most beautiful thing in the universe, which is namely himself, because he wants us to have that, he tends, us, he tends to ask us to give him our precious Consider Abraham from the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament. After decades of waiting for a child, I promise, after decades of waiting, what was most precious to him in the world? His son, Isaac. And God asked him for his son. Consider the apostle Paul. After his conversion to faith, his ministry, his work was what was most precious to him. And he had what he describes in 2 Corinthians 12 as a thorn in the flesh. This thorn in the flesh, we don't know what it was, but we know it hindered his ministry. It hindered what was tempted to be his precious. And the thorn in the flesh, because it got in his way of ministry, he asked God three times, take away this thorn in my flesh. He wanted to be free to pursue ministry freely and fully, his work. But God says no. God says no. He says my power is made perfect in weakness. What is it for you? What is the precious for you? You've got to answer this question. Maybe Jesus, and I hope this is true, I pray this is true. Maybe Jesus really is number one for you. I pray that's true most days of your life, maybe all days of your life. But you better at least know what's number two. You better, you better watch the throne. You better look out for what's number two. To quote the great Western philosopher Socrates, you better know yourself. And to quote the great Eastern philosophy Sun Tzu, you better know your enemy. You've got to know. You've got to know what it is for you, what is precious to you, your soul. Your life depends on Jesus being number one. Now, the most obvious question in this text, and the one that I have to take up, is this. Does Jesus want all of us to give all, to sell all our possessions and give to the poor? Does he want all of us to sell all our possessions and give to the poor? No, he does not. How do I know? Because others with possessions are not commanded to sell all they have. Zacchaeus gives away half. He's not commanded to give all. Peter, at least earlier in the gospel, holds on to his house. John Mark has a house that people go to. In the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures, Isaiah and Abraham are wealthy. In the New Testament, at least, Joseph of Arimathea and Lydia are wealthy. But let's ask the second question. Does Jesus call some of us to give all of our possession? Yes, he does. This has to be relevant for someone. This was not a hypothetical interaction with this man. Jesus really meant for this man, his heart was so ensnared with money that he actually had to do this, sell all he possessed and give to the poor and come 
follow Jesus. This has to be relevant to some. Let me tell you the story in church history of two young wealthy men, young rulers as it were, who gave away all of their fortune. Some of them, you might know both of these. The first is St. Francis. Francis was from a very wealthy family in Italy. He had a very complicated relationship with his father. And part of his call to ministry was literally disinheriting himself, disinvesting himself. He gave away all his possessions, removed himself from his inheritance. And then more close to home, about 110 years ago, William Borden, famously known as Borden of Yale. But William Borden was actually born and raised in Chicago. He came to faith through the church that we now call Moody Church, William Borden. William Borden renounced his fortune. He renounced his fortune, which is about a million dollars. And that day, 110 years ago, I did the math, or actually uh, Siri did the math for me. Uh, it'd be about $30 million today. He renounced his fortune to become a missionary to the Muslims. The epitaph over his life was no regrets, no reserves, no regrets. No, no, no reserves, no retreats, no regrets. He gave away his entire fortune to be a missionary to the Muslims. Died, actually, in the process of it. Robert Gundry says this about this passage and about this question. That Jesus did not command all of his followers to sell all their possessions gives comfort only to the kind of people to whom Jesus would issue this command. You see, friends, the call to sell everything and follow Jesus is a call given in love. Do you see this? This is a call given in love because what is most dangerous to our faith is that precious thing. And for many of us, it is our money. It is our wealth. And it is dangerous. Money can be a deadly cancer that rots you from the inside like it does the man in our story. Money can also be this glittering thing that attracts us and just draws us away from Jesus, the most beautiful thing in the universe. Money can kill you. It is so dangerous to our faith. A while back, I came across an article written significantly anonymously by a pastor. Um, and the title of the article was Pastoring the Wealthy. And let me kind of paraphrase four things he says in that article. He says, first of all, don't let your wealth, don't let your wealth throw off your perceptions. Particularly on the North Shore and the places that we go and weeks like vacation and Thanksgiving, we forget that we live in rarefied air and we live rarefied lives. What is normal for us is not normal. Not normal for the rest of the country, not normal for the rest of the world. Some of you would know, I've talked about it before, as a family we're involved in the ministry called Safe Families. We're children, uh, most often from impoverished families in Chicago, come and spend some time in our home for different lengths of time. Almost exclusively there from impoverished backgrounds. And one time, one of the children said to us, can we go to the park? Can we go to the park? I'm like, sure, we can go to the park. And then she pointed at our backyard. She pointed at our backyard. That was the park for her. What is just our backyard for her was a park. Friends, we lose our perceptions. Don't let your wealth throw off your perceptions. Second, don't let your wealth eat up all your time. Don't let your wealth eat up all your time. You know, the thing about money, the more you got, the more time it takes. You know, large homes, large yards, second and third homes, they take time. Our portfolios, our investments, even our giving, our taxes, they take time. And I'm not saying you don't need to have a second home. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is count the cost to your soul. Don't waste all your time thinking about and working with your money, your wealth. Third, he says, this pastor, don't let your wealth insulate you 
from compassion. I believe, I've said it before, one of the greatest threats to the North Shore, therefore one of the greatest threats to our church, is our lack of contact with people who have less. You know, it's hard to, if you live in Winnetka like I do, it's hard, you're not around people with less, unless it's in a transactional type of environment. We're insulated from poverty. And distance, friends, and we've seen this in our political discourse, distance breeds contempt. But proximity? Proximity breeds compassion. So what do you need to do? You've got to get near people who have less than you in a non-transactional environment. Not somebody you're paying to do something for you, okay? It's got to be a non-transactional setting. And it has to be intentional. And let me say this especially to parents. You've got to do this with your children. Because they live in this rare, they think this is normal. That's all they've known. You've got to find ways for your children to be around people with less in a non-transactional, non-economic environment. So you're not insulated from compassion with those who have less. Fourth, uh, he says this, I'm paraphrasing here, don't forget your wealth is a calling and a stewardship. Craig Keener, one of the commentaries, um, commentators on this passage, says this, Disciples do not lose all possession upon conversion, but disciples lose all ownership of possession, for our wealth and our lives belong to a new ruler. Which is to say our wealth is not ours. It has been given to us, whether you inherited it or are inherited or you worked for it. God gave it. He gave you the gifts. He gave you the time, the opportunities. He made you an American in the wealthiest century in American history. I've illustrated this this way before. If Jeff Bezos, I think he's the wealthiest man since Elon Musk has dumped all his stock. Uh, Jeff Bezos, uh, I think, is the wealthiest man in the world at this point. If he had been born in Nepal in the 13th century, he would not be the wealthiest man on the planet. It was about opportunity. Yes, gifts, yes. Those are all given to him by God. And so it is with us. Our wealth is not our own. It has been given to us. And how we steward it will be judged. How we steward this gift that God has given, it will be judged. Craig Blomberg, another New Testament scholar, says this, This passage should challenge first world Christians who are among the wealthiest in the world to radical changes in personal and institutional spending. But back to our story. After this man has walked away, uh, Jesus doesn't let up as he tends not to. He actually twists the knife a little bit more. Verse 23. Jesus said to his disciples, this man has just walked away sorrowful. They've heard this whole interaction. And he says to them, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, don't raise your hands, but have any of you heard the interpretation that there's a needle gate in Jerusalem? Uh, in ancient Jerusalem, there's this needle gate that was actually really small, but if you, got a, uh, you know, if you got the camel down on its knees, it could kind of barely get through. I've heard this. Has anybody heard this? Okay, there is zero archaeological evidence for that. <laughs> there is zero archaeological evidence for that gate. But it's amazing that that interpretation is still taught. Why? It's a testimony to our eagerness to feel better about our wealth and our mind. We think if we just do hard, we get on our knees and we can get through that gate. No. There is no such gate. Here is what Jesus means. Let me, let me tell you very clearly what Jesus means when he says this. Quote, this is Jesus. This, this is what it means. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. That's what he means. He couldn't say it more clearly, which is to say it is impossible. It is impossible. So if money is so dangerous and it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, where does that leave us? Is there any hope? Friends, there is great hope. It brings us to the last thing I want to talk about, which is the hope of faith. Because like you and like me, the disciples are aghast. 
They, are, they can't believe this. Verse 25, when they heard this, they are astonished. Who then can be saved, they ask. But Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible. With God all things are possible. All things are possible. Now you need to know in the Jewish scriptures and in the Hebrew world in this time, wealth was largely a positive thing. It was not something looked down upon. Like it was largely a sign of God's blessing. I mean, think of Job, think of Abraham, think of Isaiah, think of Daniel, these people with power and money. Wealth can be a blessing. It's a blessing that is designed to bless others. But the disciples have failed to see that God's material blessings are not a result of character or good works. God's material blessings are a gift of God to be a blessing. And since with God all things are a gift, all things, all things are possible, even the salvation of rich people. God can and does save people with material wealth. He can and he does. Perhaps my favorite passage about this is in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Speaking of Jesus and riches, he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, so that we through his poverty might become rich. Friends, the good news of the gospel is Christ left all the wealth of the universe and the heavens to come and be one of us, to die for our sins, to give us eternal life. He came to do this for us. He became poor so that we could become rich. But here's the deal. That life is not just eternal life. I got some really good news for you. It's not just eternal life. It is abundant life. Life here and now. Which is to say, you can be changed. You can be different. You, we, I can be emancipated from our slavery to money and a thousand other things that we hold precious in this life. You can be free. And so what I want to do, that is a work of God's spirit. But in closing, I want to consider five things that we can do to loosen our grip, loosen our grip on money, loosen our grip on the thing that we hold precious, and as we loosen our grip on that thing, that we grab hold of the good and beautiful thing, the Lord Jesus Christ. Five things. The first is this. Be honest with yourself. Just be honest. Know yourself and know the enemy within. What is most precious to you? Be honest. You don't have to tell anybody else. You don't have to tell me, your wife, your husband. You can write in your journal and burn it up. But be honest. Take a spiritual audit of your spending, your income, your giving, your mortgages, your debts, your possessions. Take a spiritual audit and just be honest. What does this say? What is precious to me? And then, having been honest with yourself, begin to daily, on a daily basis, confess your sin and humble yourself, acknowledging that you love something, or at least are tempted to love something more than you love God, and ask God for his help. Confess, humble yourself, and ask God for help daily. Third way to loosen your grip on the money, on the precious, and grab hold of God is give money away. It's amazing. If you start to give money away, if you start to give money away, it actually loosens your grip. It literally, right? You're literally letting go. So your grip is looser. It's amazing, right? You see, giving is a spiritual discipline, just like prayer. It reorients your heart. It loosens your grip on the things of this world so that you may grab hold of God. And as you give, this amazing thing, as you give and as you give more and more, you start to feel the joy of giving. You start to enter into what Jesus expressed when he said, it is more blessed to give than receive. And he who is gift, he understood this. It is more blessed to give than to receive. So as we gift, as we give, our hands loosen. 
But the fourth thing, and I don't know exactly how to say this. i got to be honest. I don't know how to say this. But expose yourself to God's work in the world. Expose yourself. Do something adventuresome for God. Do something risky for God. Do something dangerous for God. Right? Go somewhere outside your comfort zone. I mean, I think of my friend George Panato who's moved away here. A couple of years ago, he, needed to do, he knew he needed to do more of this. So what did he do? He found a trip to Haiti and he took his son to Haiti. A dangerous place, right? He did something dangerous for God with his son. Maybe you need to start a business in Chicago that helps Chicago with all the grief that's in Chicago. All the unrest even this weekend, right? You know, they say that nothing stops a bullet like a job. Well, start a business that provides a job so that bullets can be stopped. What, I, don't, I don't know how to say this, but just expose yourself to God's kingdom. Just put yourself out there in some way. Do something crazy and just see how God meets you in that risk, in that danger, in that adventure. Expose yourself. But then lastly and most importantly, how do you let go and grab hold of God? You worship Jesus. You behold him. You rub your nose in his power and his beauty. You realize that there is something so much more. You realize that there's something so much more and beautiful and fulfilling than that next guy's trip to St. Andrews or Patagonia. You realize that there's something so much more than that next handbag or redecorated kitchen. There's something so much more and more beautiful. Worship him. See him in his fullness. Perhaps my favorite verses in all the New Testament are in Philippians chapter 3. The Apostle Paul, his precious was not money so much, but it was learning before he became a Christian. Later, I talked about how it was ministry, but this is what he writes. He said, verse 8 of chapter 3 of Philippians, Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus, my Lord. He's better than the handbag. He's better than the guy's trip. And then he goes on to say, because I want to know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of sharing in his suffering, so that somehow, I love that word, somehow, I might attain to the resurrection from the dead. He wants more. He's rubbing his nose in Jesus. He's leaning into Jesus and seeing the beauty, the grandeur of him. So in the words of Jesus, I mean, the words of the old hymn, this is what I'm asking and telling us to do. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let me pray for us. God, you're so good. You're so beautiful. You're so powerful. And I confess for myself, there's so many things that I look to to find satisfaction and joy away from you. But I pray, Lord, that we would feast upon you, that we would look to you, and that the things of this world, the precious things of this world, money and others, would grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace. Would you do that for us, Jesus? Amen.